Lucy Harwood. Um, so I've done a little bit of digging around and I've discovered. Ricky Grove. Fog comes in on little cat feet. <laughs> Phil Rice. This is the best film that I've seen all year and maybe ever. Damien Valentine. Use the machinima, Luke. Hey there, and welcome to And Now for Something Completely Machinima, the podcast about machinima and virtual production and other related technologies. This week we have a pick from the the long past by Ricky Grove. This is a film made by a friend of ours, Claus Dieter Schultz. And uh, it was made, oh goodness, I don't even remember the year, but it was, this is from that Machinima's first decade. And at the time that it was made, we had never seen anything like it before that would legitimately fall into the category of Machinima. It's one that has perplexed me and eluded my grasp. And I think that's maybe one of the things that makes it great. Ricky, why don't you tell us about it? Yeah, I'm looking forward to discussing that with you, that very thing, meaning and content. I chose this film because, A, it's a wonderful film, but also it's a film that deserves notice. And you, Phil, and again, I congratulate you and, and thank you for all of your efforts in restoring the many Machinimaplex films by uh, upgrading their quality upscaling their quality. And I was going through some of the older films and looking at them, and I came across uh, this film called Nine, the, the number nine. Klaus-Dieter Schultz was a German uh, machinima filmmaker in the very early days. All of his films had those qualities that you all know that I respect, which is originality and imagination. While the great majority of machinima filmmakers of the time are rushing to copy other popular films or copy popular television forms or commercials or movies, uh, Klaus Dieter Schultz moved in a completely different direction. And I think it's because his background was steeped in what is called cinema modernism. Modernism began in the early part of the century, and it was a reaction to the um, what they called bourgeois realism of the 19th century. And instead of making things uh, realistic and well-rounded and understandable, it moved towards abstraction. There was a whole series of films that many excellent filmmakers. Um, there was a great film called uh, Ballet Mechanique. Um, who did that one? I can't remember. But it was a whole series of, of abstract films in which they basically manipulated shapes uh, in order to create visually pleasing experiences and also a, a feeling in, in the viewer far, far away from the realistic films of the time. And so when I came across this uh, film in the collection that we have at Vimeo, I was so impressed because it still has, it still evokes feeling in me. It it also operates in this, he shot it in this weird space inside of games. I want to call it a liminal space in game, which is sort of outside the bounds of the regular game map. Uh, Elden Ring has this a lot. Uh, there are glitches that players have 
explored in which you can go, you'll, you'll, you'll find a place and you'll jump over a bunch of rocks and then you'll find this tiny little split in the rocks in the in the in the the uh, map that opens on to nothingness and if you jump into this nothingness while you're swinging your weapon and riding your horse you can reap a whole bunch of runes uh by glitching but the space you're in is this very strange sort of abstract place that's parts of maps parts of characters it's very strange and the fact that he had enough originality and and Klaus Dieter and was so sensitive to game space that he saw this as a possible way to create films, I think is remarkable. Um, the music is from the Boards of Canada, which is one of my favorite um, sort of, I, I don't know what you call it, experimental music, spatial music. Anyway, it fits the, the the mood of the piece, which actually has a kind of development to it. The It starts out slowly abstract, and then it becomes more abstract, and then eventually fades away into very tiny abstractions, which I thought was great. I have to say that I want to kick myself again for throwing away all of my old Machiniplex recordings because we had an interview uh, with on abstract machinima at machinima plex it was a panel discussion in which klaus dieter schultz took place had i not been stupid and got rid of it we would have been able to share some of that with you so i apologize once again for that but i i just love this film and it affected me just as much as it did the first time when i watched it again what were your reactions guys hmm. shall I... I start with this one go on um I don't remember too much about Klaus Dieter, um, but I do remember that he was involved with the Expo as well. Um, and I'm sure you'll be delighted to know, I've actually found his blog um, for Machinima Studios that goes right the way back to 2008. Oh. Um, so that will be very helpful, I'm sure, because I, I think there'll be some content on there that you'll both really, uh, well, you'll all really enjoy. Thank you. Um, I only know that he's a German creator and that he was active primarily in the late 2000s. Nine, as I understand it, um, from his from his blog mainly, was released um, 14 years ago on the 31st of July, 2009. Um, and it was his, what, what he's described as his first abstract machinima and it's been inspired by the work of Oscar Fischinger, Hans, Fischinger right. Hans Richter and also Stan Brackage. Brackage, sure. Brackage, yeah. yeah. Now it's black and white, obviously. Um and it's something that Pastita referred to as a as a motion graphics experiment. And like you, Ricky, these these visuals are really quite mesmerizing. Um and I think that a lot of um the reaction that I get to it is actually from the music that it's been put to um but actually what i've discovered that is that he released two versions of this uh the first was to corsair by boards of canada um, and this version actually is the second version which was to an original composition by martin gertner 
Um, and of the two versions, which you can you can still both um, find both of these versions on his channel. Um, I definitely prefer the the Gertner version. It's more upbeat um, and actually kind of seems to complement the generative images you see on the screen a little more than the um, the Boards of Canada version of it. Um, somehow, I don't know, I don't know how, but it it, it does. Um, I'm not sure which of the two versions Klaus Dieter actually preferred. I mean, I'm guessing you don't actually know, but my thoughts would be it's probably this Gertner version because that's the one you you know remastered Phil and it and it's it's brilliant the way that you've re remastered with yeah. Gertner's music but I've got to yeah. say in places when you were listen to the original music it is just a teeny bit warbled compared to the original so, hmm. so I'll share you both of those versions and you see what you think but when I was um looking at this I also thought well I want to see what Oscar Fishinger has has done as well as the others. So I actually found the only film that Oscar Fishinger ever made on YouTube, um, and it's called An Optical Poem, and it was released originally in 1938. Now, what you see in that film is the link being made by the creator between the music and the form of the images. And in fact, it's all about the sound, which evokes the visual portrayals of sound and in that particular piece what you've got is the film being put to Liszt's Hungarian Rhapsody and it's a colour piece it's it's shapes um it's, it's really interesting it's quite mesmerizing um but actually I'd, I'd suggest you kind of watch it as well because it's intriguing and it's intriguing for a couple of reasons one was um it's argued that it was uh, a novel approach to animation and it was created using paper cutouts hanging on almost invisible wires and it right. was shot frame by frame to be in sync with the music. And it's basically described as an imaginary outer space. Mm -hmm. And it's and it's it's really quite interesting. And watching this, it kind of makes <clears> the <throat> question uh, of, of Klaus's, Klaus Dieter's work which came first because in the fishing example it was about the music driving the visuals and which came first in Klaus Dieter's um example I think we probably all agree that it's most likely to be the visuals I would have thought particularly yeah when, I agree when, when we hear that there's two different you know when we understand that there's two different um music pieces that it's been put to um i don't know uh but but i also think that what you're seeing with Klaus Dieter's pieces it's it's a little bit more abstract than that hungarian rhapsody piece and then i also found films uh, another one called film study by hans richter which was a 1926 silent short um which does actually include um, a musical score which had been sampled from from um, Darius Millard um, and through that piece you can clearly see a connection in terms of visual design references that Klaus Dieter has used that's black and white that's very much the same kind of shapes so you can clearly see that kind of um, that connection if you like that piece though is described as Dadaist and I don't know too much about 
Dadaist or Dadaism, although I I understood it largely to be political references in in terms of the of the content. So I'm not too sure about how that fits into what Klaus Dieter's work was all about. And then, of course, I was also looking at clips of Stan Brakhage's work, um, who's obviously a very well-known experimental filmmaker. Um, and of those pieces, I kind of thought that possibly it was Mothlight. That's what I was going to say, Mothlight. Most, it seemed to me that one was the most clearly related to this work. Yeah. Um, so, you know, this raised some really interesting questions for me in terms of the creative process that Klaus Dieter had gone through. And then as you were talking, Ricky, I was thinking, and, and the way that you were saying nine, you know, I was wondering if the Dardarus reference wasn't also to that title, because what does that mean in the context of what we're looking at? Is it nine, an, a numeral, or is it nine meaning no in German? I don't know. Well, the Dadas were about uh, they 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 were precursors to the absurdist, mm. which meant non sequiturs, things that don't seem to fit or put right next to each other. Mm. And I think in a way, n nine is a non sequitur because yeah. you don't think of numbers when you're looking at the no what's going on in the, in the film. Not. It's a non sequitur. Yes. So no, <laughs> nine yeah. as in the German Good. indeed. Interesting, interesting uh, research and, and thinking on that. Thank you. Mm, a really interesting avant-garde pick, though, Ricky. I re I really yeah. thanks for sharing it. I don't think sure. it's dated too much at all because of the way that it was, uh, you know, what it was presenting and how it was doing. I think it's a very interesting um, yeah. film to discuss here. Thanks for sharing. Bill, you had expressed some thoughts that you were troubled with trying to understand it. What is it that about the film that creates this feeling in you? You know, that's more so, I experienced less of that on this, the on the rewatch than I did when we first were confronted by this film, um, which was a, it was a submission to the Machinima Expo and he ended up, um, it ended up winning some kind of a jury prize related to the festival or, or uh, um, but that's what, that's when we first did that. that. That's what the occasion for the interview with him was. And I remember us, uh, we conducted that interview actually kind of as a group. And I confessed to him that I felt like my ability to, to understand and fully appreciate truly abstract work like this, that I felt hampered by um, just this sense of, of I'm wanting to, to, draw something out of this and I, I find it was all just confusion you know and that it wasn't just for his piece but abstract work in general um you know you you look at dolly is at least a lot of his work is there it's grounded in a reality that that has then been contorted or you know corroded in some way and so at least i have something to grasp onto there but you know mondrian or something or, or jackson pollock I just don't know what to make of that, you know, when it when it gets really truly abstract or absurdist, as this may better fall into. Um, I don't know how much different that is today, but I I definitely didn't feel disturbed by it like I did then. So and I don't know if that's I don't know what that is. Is that 
was I more arrogant back then? And so it, it was disturbing to me because I was upset that there was something I didn't personally understand. Was I just immature? Uh, you know, after last week's mention of the female butt mod for Starfield, I, I think we can rule out. <laughs> I'm not mature. <laughs> but artistically, you know, I still don't feel like I would know how to produce something like this. I don't, I don't know. I, I, it's a gene I don't have, I think. Or at least it's either that or I have so negatively programmed myself by telling me myself that for decades. I don't get this. I don't know how to do that. Have I cast a spell on myself? You know, have I, have I prophesied it by keep saying it? I don't know. It's this, this episode isn't about the complexities of my psychological profile, but you know, it's, I don't know. I think that I brought this up when talking to Klaus Dieter in our interview. I don't remember for sure if I mentioned it to him or not, but when I was in, when I was at university and studied philosophy, uh, one of the areas that we covered was, was uh, Ludwig uh, Wittgenstein and his, his understanding of when, when a reader comes to a text, there's, for lack of a better word, art that happens in that moment because the reader is bringing something with them and actually changing the text by interacting with it through reading. So the text is not a static thing. It's just a starting point. And it's really the reader is bringing something. And, and he had this whole philosophy built on that idea. And I kind of feel like maybe abstract art maybe is that way too. So me being disturbed by it when I was, I've, I guess I've come to wonder if that wasn't something I was bringing to it, more so than something that was coming out of that screen and hitting me, you know? I think that's one of the things that in my own limited way, I've come to appreciate about abstract art because abstract art has an openness to it that lets the viewer do that much more so than at the other extreme end of things would be a photograph. Yeah. A photograph leaves nothing to your imagination whatsoever. You can still interpret things about a photograph, but there's not really room for interpretation on yeah. what you're physically seeing. It is what it is. abstract art, it's the other way. It's, yeah, your, your brain does something different when interacting with this or with any abstract art. So, yeah, those are the things that I found myself thinking about. Um, I don't find that my reaction to it now is is one of discomfort or being disturbed. And I tend to think that's because I've kind of chilled the F out a little bit <laughs> in terms of I have to grasp and understand everything. You know, I get I guess, you know, it's like all of us. The older you get, the more you realize you don't know. And you're either going to be comfortable with that or you're going to be miserable. Yeah, yeah, and yeah, I, yeah. And I choose and I choose to not be miserable with the mysteries of the universe, you know? Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I, 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 I love it. Klaus Dieter, uh, was actually, when I did the overcast podcast back in that same era, he was one of my most vocal listeners. He would email me after almost every episode, just with some kind of comment, uh, always 
very friendly and intelligent and just respectful. And sometimes it was a, a suggestion. Sometimes it was just, you said this, and it made me think of this. And if you remember that show, it we didn't delve into the kind of stuff that we do on this one, talking about, I don't know, sometimes veering into deep territory. The Overcast was just, but just fun. Kind of zany fun. Yeah. But he found a way to, ironically enough, draw depths out of that that I didn't even know was there, you know, right. in his comments. That's the kind of person he was. Um, he was fiercely honest with me um, in terms of critique as well as praise. I mean, just just a really interesting guy. And and I still don't know why. Like, I didn't meet him somewhere, and then I said, let's, hey, I didn't give him my business card and say, hey, listen to my podcast. He just showed up. I didn't know who he was. He just showed up out of nowhere, and he was the most interactive listener of that little podcast. That's great. That's uh, great. And we became, I think I can say, friends from, you know, from those interactions. There was a lot of back and forth, and just a very interesting guy. And yeah, and then... He talked about, I want to make a machinima film. And I, I mean, he hadn't done anything yet. And uh, he did something, something specifically in response to something on the podcast. Oh, wow. Where, where it was, uh, it was based on, on some poem, uh, some Portuguese poem. I can't remember what it was called um, because the name was in Portuguese. I can't remember, but um that was the first thing I'd ever seen from him. And it was, it was quite unique. And then I think this may have been the, only the second thing that I'd seen him create. And yeah, I was very honest with him and, and with you at the time that just, I, I don't know what to make of this. So I don't know if I still know what to make of it, but uh, if I'm honest, I didn't enjoy that back then. And now I do. So yeah. make of that what you will, but I actually, I enjoy watching this. I enjoy rewatching it. Yeah. And there's no comprehension going on. And maybe that's the whole point is that right. I should I shouldn't have ever been trying to comprehend. If you look at the actual roots of what that word is, I shouldn't have been trying to apprehend or comprehend this. I should have just been in the room with it all along. Yeah. 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 So maybe you know, that's where I've come to. I love your comments, Phil. Thank you. You're just so insightful. You're not alone in that feeling about abstract art. The problem with abstraction and experimental filmmaking is that it becomes elitist and that people who enjoy it uh, will often create cliques in which they have special knowledge of blah, blah, blah. And that's not what the intention of any of that at all was. It was to blow a breath of fresh air into a stale art forms right. and to try to perceive cinema as a direct form in which there's no interpretations, there's no symbols, there's no nothing. It's just you and the images on the screen. Certainly, that's what Stan Brackage did with Mothlight. Mothlight, he collected moths that had died in his outside light, and he pulled them apart and then used their wings to to put on film stock. And he did that for months until he had, you know what, 10 minutes or eight minutes of film. And then he developed that film and that's what you see. You see random shapes coming together and coalescing and you, the viewer, read into that film any associations you have 
based on the shapes where no no yeah. associations were intended. And I think that's one of the beautiful things about experimental art. It's an option outside of the mainstream that I'm really glad we have. Not everybody enjoys it, not everybody gets it, but you know, oftentimes experimental elements will make their way into mainstream films. For example, Salvador Dali did a dream sequence for a major Hollywood film. Oftentimes abstract uh, uh, art or film can be put into those sections in which irrational moments occur or dreams occur. Now that's a different thing than what we have here with Klaus Dieter Schultz, but it does bleed into the mainstream in some way. So I'm really glad for all of your comments, especially you, you, you really, your honesty about your experience with it is just refreshing. And then thank you, Klaus Dieter Schultz. If you're listening, come back and make another film, okay? You are yes. so goddamn talented. You didn't make as many films as you should. You're so good. We, have we and heard from Damien? Oh, uh. Damien. I'm so sorry. Go ahead. I, <laughs> I, oh, I'm such an egotist. I apologize. Go ahead. Uh, that's all right. I was kind of trying to figure out how am I supposed to follow what all of you have said so far. So, uh, but Ricky, I was thinking maybe I had a free pass there. So Tracy, you've ruined that. <laughs> I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, I remember when when I watched this this film again for this show, I remember seeing it back in the expo days. I can't remember what I thought of it back then. I suspect I appreciated it more now than I did back then. Um, and it kind of echoes some of the things that Phil was talking about is um, getting older and being able to see things differently and not worrying too much about what you don't understand. Um, it did give me a feeling and reminded me of some things, but um, I'm not sure if I should share that or not because it's my own personal interpretation. Right, exactly. You don't need to, no. Um, so I enjoyed watching it now and it, I enjoyed the feeling it gave to me. Um, and then I started thinking about it from sort of the technical perspective because obviously my understanding of 3D animation uh, and how everything's made in games has increased since those expo days. And I was thinking about, I still don't know how this was made because <laughs> obviously the shapes in it are fairly simple, but the effects made the, the way they move and interact with each other, that's not an easy thing to do. No. I was trying to figure out how to do it with iClone. And I was thinking, well, it could be possible, but it would take such a huge amount of time and energy mm -hmm. is it actually worth even trying to do something yeah. like that um so ricky when you said at the beginning of this episode that it was made by going into the space outside of the game world where things do get strange that suddenly made it all make sense so i was glad you got that because it's kind of bugging me ever since i watched it again for this so nah. how does it how does he make it yeah, um, yeah. You'll find sometimes that in certain games, if you go outside the boundaries of the map, the graphics distort. Yeah. And depending upon where you, you, the game player are, you can move forward or back or side to side, and those graphics will change. Hmm. And I think, I, I'm not sure, but I think that's what Klaus did. I think he found a place in which those graphics would change. And I think he recorded 30 minutes and an hour of him interacting with it and then cut it down to that bit. That That's my guess. Probably made his own sort of map in the game world for what he wanted. He, did, he wasn't using a 
something that came with the game itself. No. His own. Yeah. Um, at least that's what I would add on to your theory there. Right. No, I Actually, have a question the... for you. Go ahead, Phil. I was just going to add the the origin of that. The first time that I think that that was ever seen, that effect, it used to be called the Hall of Mirrors effect. Hmm. It, it basically, once truth, well, true mostly 3D games came about, like Doom. Um, Doom wasn't actually a true 3D game, the original. Um, it was kind of 2.5D. Um, you know, the... the Nothing could be over something else in a map in Doom. It wasn't three-dimensional, truly. But if there was an area in a map that did not have a texture applied to it, then it would be, it would end up being transparent. And if that place where there was no texture was outside the game world, then the game engine didn't know what to render there. So it would just try to render whatever was nearby. And it created this very strange effect and throughout all the doom games and this is talking late 90s and early 2000s the doom games the quake games there were inevitably little places somewhere where someone forgot a texture on the official maps and if you found it yeah you could um you could trigger that they called it the hall of mirrors effect because that's kind of what it, what it ended up looking like but then what was really interesting is that how that untextured openness to the outside of the you know the the partition was interpreted varied by graphics card yes that's right now i remember so there was a, there was a slightly different way that it would get rendered depending on which graphics card and some of those games had a way of changing from regular rendering to open gl rendering and that would make that behave totally differently and it's something that i observed and ran into but it just never occurred to me to use in the way that he did it's brilliant yeah um I, I had some ideas of how to how to mess with it but it just i didn't know what to do with with what i captured and it just so yeah there's there's a an amazing mind behind this that this is I, a, a thing that has probably yeah. been observed by hundreds of thousands if not millions of players of games at some point you've seen some glitch like what even now in elden ring it's still there you find a spot something isn't quite right it's it's been that way for multiple decades and uh you know here's someone who took that and turned it into into art it's amazing yeah uh damien i have a last question for you do you would you enjoy the film more if they removed the boards of or the uh soundtrack and included the original star wars <laughs> theme to it actually Sort of along those lines, I didn't replace it with the Star Wars soundtrack, but I just turned the sound off and just watched it mute mm. for the visuals, mm. and that, that increased the feeling I got more than listening to it with the, the music that came with it. Fascinating, fascinating. Well, thank you, everybody. One more thing I wanted to mention, Tracy, you, you mentioned wondering about, you know, the chicken and the egg thing with which came first. Was it the sound that inspired the visuals or the other way around it, it occurred to me there's one other possibility and we won't know unless Claus Dieter reaches out to us but it's quite possible that the visuals were in part inspired by the original soundtrack but then ah. the visual but then the visuals that were inspired by the original soundtrack then inspired Martin what's what's the composer's name that that did the new the, the second soundtrack 
that that chain of of inspiration is is very interesting um gertner i beg your pardon gertner yeah maybe maybe martin gertner never heard the original soundtrack he was just given the visuals and those visuals inspired his musical approach Mm. um i don't know just for for whatever it's kind of random but it just just occurred to me so fascinating i'm I'm really glad you 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 picked this one ricky uh uh it's it's good to revisit it yeah it's just to let everybody yeah just to let everybody know you know there is a element of uh experimental in machinima filmmaking it's not as big as the major trends and then unreal films and all of that but it's still there so keep your eyes open for it and if you're looking for a new experience try it out great pick again ricky thank you and uh thank you everybody for listening we love your feedback so drop us a comment um drop us a like if you like the show how about that and then uh over on our website we've got different ways to contact us as well we thrive on your feedback we love it we may not get to read it all out here on the show every time but we share it with each other when it comes in and it's it's pretty exciting stuff so keep that coming we we really appreciate it and uh tracy ricky damien thanks for your time you're welcome uh, everybody have a good day yep 